0: All right, everybody, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. Good to see you. Happy first week of Advent. We're finally here. Something that we were just talking about a minute ago is I feel like as we start out the church year in Advent every year, there's almost an essence or a sense of of reset that happens as we get to start from the beginning, walking through the story of redemption. And so we get to start that this morning. And in in an interesting fashion, our church year starts out at the end, as we look to the end, as we look to the coming of Christ. And so, can we stand together as we begin something we've been doing for probably the past four months? We've been going through the New City Catechism, and I think we were in uh, question sixteen or seventeen. Well, in light of guys, we are T minus five weeks. T-minus five weeks from this looking very different as we make this move to Alpine Church, which, by the way, we have Mr. John Willie with us this morning. He's going to come bring the word out of Ruth, and so we are excited about that. And so, but it hit me that we can't go through all 52 catechism questions in the next five weeks, (laughs) and we're not going to attempt to do that. But what we are going to do is we're going to to jump around a little bit over the next five weeks. And so what I want to do this morning, we're going to be in question and answer 49. And so I'm going to ask this question. Let's say this answer out loud and let this prepare our hearts as we enter the Advent season. It says this. The question is, where is Christ now? Let's say this out loud. Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling His kingdom and interceding for us until He returns to judge and renew the whole world. In Ephesians 1, it talks about that God raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so as we enter these next couple of weeks, the word Advent literally means arrival or coming. And so we look to that day when we shall see Christ in full, when he returns to judge and renew the whole world. For us who are in Christ, well, what a wonderful that day that will be. And so something that we should be doing as part of our spiritual life is hastening that day to come. And so as we have done for many years, we start our Advent season here at Wardville Church with Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. And so can we just sing this together?
1: Here we go. Come Thou long Of Emmanuel sings together. Sing we the song of Emmanuel. This the Christ who is born for soul. oh in the shadows of Bethlehem, promise of dawn now. Together glory. Two, three, four, five, six. Seven. Long ago, our God spoke for men. Sing us together. Long ago, our God spoke through men. Now we spoke. His prophecy is done Spoken by
0: That's what we confess that our God is coming soon. Let's sing
1: us together. Let's hold fast what we confess.
0: Just once more, let's hold fast what we confess.
1: Let's hold fast what we confess, draw boldly to his throne, stir each other's right.
0: Church, this first week of Advent, there's a theme to every week. In this first week, we like to center on hope, the hope that we have in Christ and the hope in His coming again. And so I'm going to ask John and Marjorie to come, and they're going to come and light the first candle for us, and then also read Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9.
2: Now the word of the true and living God, Isaiah 64, one through nine. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him joyfully. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Yahweh, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people.
0: In a lot of what we just read, can we just kind of sit in that for a minute? Lord there are many things in our life that you simply call for us to wait to wait on your hand to move your voice to speak Lord and this is one of the things that you call upon us to do as we look to eternity is to wait is to wait for you is to look to who you are is to look to the awesome things that you will do. Lord, we confess this morning that we are not good at that. We are not good at sitting and waiting and looking, but our eyes get distracted by anything and everything, by the cares of this world. Lord, we repent of that. We confess that to you. We ask this morning that you would center our hearts and our minds this Advent season. Lord, upon that which is eternal and that we would run towards those things. Lord, you would also increase our longing, increase our desire and our longing for you, for your words, Lord, over anything else on this earth. this morning Lord come quickly Lord Jesus redeem your people
1: Jesus Is coming soon. Call back the sinner, wake up the saints, let every nation
2: shout of
1: your fame. Jesus is coming soon. Let's lift this up with one voice like a you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and the prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt praise the Father praise the Lord Your suffering you saw to the other side knowing this was our salvation Jesus for I say you die so our response this morning praise the Father Praise the Father Praise the Son Praise the And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe, and the souls of all who come to the Father are restored, and the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame, now this gospel truth of old shall not heal and shall not fail. By His blood and in His name, in His freedom I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. Praise the. Once praise the Father.
0: name is King Jesus we look to that day Lord stir that up within us remind us Lord as we as we finish out this morning as we go later this week let that be on our mind in our spirits I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears by your spirit's power as we hear from from John in the book of Ruth thank you for the gift of your word and what it is to us to just do a work within us Use us for your purposes and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, you be seated. I believe it is ages, is it the younger ages this morning? So ages four through six can be dismissed.
3: Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's, I was telling Josh and a few others, it really is bizarre to be back here this morning. I see many uh, familiar faces, some new faces. Me and my wife remembers here about seven years ago, uh, and then we transitioned to Alpine, where I started to lead worship over there, which is almost comical in one way after hearing Kevin lead worship that I led worship at Alpine. It's just, we are getting a major upgrade uh, with Kevin and with all of you coming to Alpine. We're so thankful for that. Uh, but it really is uh, my honor to be here with you this morning. It's, it, in a way, it's, it's heavy for me to be here this morning because when my wife and I left Wardville uh, to go to Alpine to serve there, I, I never imagined um, one that I'd be serving as pastor there, but then coming back uh, to look at the hopeful joining of of two churches. We use this word a lot, all of us do, uh, talking about season. We're going into a a new season of life, or I've been through a difficult season or a good season, and I can tell you all of us at Alpine are really excited about the next season of ministry uh, for both of our churches to hopefully become one and serve together, serve our community together. Uh, One thing, before we get into Ruth, I just want to reiterate, I know that your elders have, have shared this with you. Uh, we've communicated this to them, uh, that for Wardville to join with Alpine, in no way does this mean that this has been a failure in Wardville. Y'all have served faithfully for nine, ten years now here in in Wardville. This is not a failure by any means. Uh, What this is, I believe, is evidence of your elders in this church trusting and following the direction of the Lord and His will and seeking His will and following faithfully in that. Uh, This is not an abandonment of the gospel, but uh, a further of the gospel in that. So it it really is my my joy to be here with you uh, and start in the, the book of Ruth. If you have read Ruth at all, you know that it is both a fascinating and beautiful story. Ruth is a story not just about Ruth. Ruth could just as easily be titled Naomi or Boaz It's a story, a grave story about Elimelech in chapter one. It's a story of devastating loss and unexpected joy. Ruth is a story of despair and faithfulness. It's a story of emptiness and fullness because Ruth is really a story about a Redeemer. So, our goal today, this morning, is twofold. First, it's to set the stage for the rest of your journey uh, into Ruth. And there is so much in this first chapter. I just want to give the disclaimer here. We're in no way going to be able to touch it all. There, there's so much here. My, my hope is that this morning would stir your heart through this Advent season to go back and pick at Ruth and pull it apart and read deeply into it and really pull a lot out of it. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see two stories really unfold, the stories of Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth and then their journey to Moab and back to Bethlehem. And then our last goal is to get a glimpse of how this is all pointing to the Messiah. So there's a lot here. Let's start by reading the first chapter of Ruth, shall we? We'll read it all. It starts this way in Ruth chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem, in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife, and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Melchon and Kilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malhan and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt kindly with the dead, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I too am old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she had determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So they said to them, do not call me Naomi. There is a lot going on in this passage and a lot for us to see. So let me set the stage for us to see how this author is unfolding the beautiful story of Ruth and what we should see from it. Now, if you are in the book of Ruth right now and you flip back one page, you will see the very end of the book of Judges. And this tells us a lot about what is happening here. The author opens up this story by saying, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if we did a quick overview of the story of Judges, we would see that Judges starts out and Joshua has led the people into the promised land. They finally made it and has given them the instructions to obey the commands of the Torah. And by doing so, they will show all the other nations what God is like. But the book of Judges also begins with Joshua's death and Israel's total collapse from there. The book highlights six judges, and in the story of the last three judges, their corruption is seen with increased clarity of their wickedness. Gideon forgets God, Jephthah doesn't know God's character, and Samson lives completely contrary to God's law. The book ends with a private army raiding a temple and then burning a city to the ground. In other words, there was no governing structure and people did as they pleased. And if you look at the very end of Judges, in verse 25, it says this, "...in those days there was no king of Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes." Now, we may feel like we live in that world now, where people are just doing exactly as they want. They live by their own rule and way, but what the author is doing, I think, is turning up the volume to 10. There's this one story in the book of Judges that brings us right back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ultimately, what happens is a man gives his daughter and concubine away to these men that abuse her all night. And we're using that word lightly, abuse when we know exactly what happened here. They bring the master back, the concubine, and ultimately he kills her and cuts her into pieces. I mean, these are not passages in the book of Judges that we're going to find hanging in Hobby Lobby to decorate our houses. This is not something that we're going to see in the back of the church wall, read this about Judges. No, this is an incredibly dark time. And so when the author starts off in the the day that the Judges ruled, a first century reader would see this and say, oh, man, this is not good. In this day, women were marginalized, considered properly property. There was no real assurance of safety. There is no king. There's no governing authority, no 911 you can call. You can cry out for help, but it's unlikely that anyone will come help you because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this is where we find the story of Ruth in deep darkness. But it goes on. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, if we read these first few verses, there is a descent. It starts off from bad and gets worse to hopeless. I want you to see this. In the time of the judges, there was a famine. Now, most times in the Old Testament, famine means what? It means God's judgment. So there's a time of the judges, there was a famine in the land, so a man decides to sojourn into Moab. Even worse, he takes his family. Now, the narrator doesn't come out and say that this is the reason for the famine in the land, but this is the day when the judges ruled, and I believe that he is trying to paint a very clear picture for us. To go from Bethlehem to Moab is a wordplay here. Here. Bethlehem means house of bread. And now in the house of bread, there is a famine. But let's see what Elimelech has decided to do by going to Moab. Here is some history for us. In Genesis 19, you may remember that the Moabites start from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters in Genesis 19. When Israel is fleeing from Egypt, it's the Moabites who resist their passage in Numbers 22. In Numbers 25, it's Moabite women who seduce the Israelite men and cause them to turn from God and start worshiping and making sacrifices to Moabite gods, and then they're punished for it. And most recently, in Judges 3, it's the Israelite people who are oppressed by the king of Moab. So when we read the story of Elimelech, there's a famine in the land. Is Elimelech's decision to go to Moab Unreasonable. No. I mean, he hears that food's there. And men, I think this is a good place for us to pause. I think all of us have this desire to provide for our families, our children. If you don't have families or children to provide, protect your church, is Elimelech's desire to leave all bad? It's not. There's a famine where I'm at there's food in Moab and to some degree here at reading it at face value we can sympathize with Elimelech a little bit he wants to provide for his family i can still hear my father as a young kid him instilling this into me as a little boy he would always say things to me like son pull your shoulders back stand up straight have a firm handshake look people in the eye when you talk to them and when He'd leave the house. He would always give me this instruction. He would say, John, now while I'm gone, you're the man of the house. Now, as an eight-year-old, was I really the man of the house? I mean, could I tell my 40-year-old mom that, hey, here's how we're gonna run things now? (laughs) No, that's not what he meant at all. But what he was trying to instill within me was this value that we look after our family. We protect our family. We provide for our family. So Elimelech, is his decision to go to Moab, is it all out of bounds? Not necessarily. I don't think his decision's wrong. But are his choices right? No. Now remember... This story is full of wordplay. And Elimelech's name means, my God is my king. So who is Elimelech's God? Yahweh. So he's saying, his name means, Yahweh is my king. And for a first century reader that knows all of the history of Moab, for Elimelech to take his family to Moab, they'd be saying, no, 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 no. No, this is a bad decision. Theologian Christopher Ash says it this way for Elimelech to take his family to Moab would be like leaving to join the Islamic State. There is no way around this. To go to Moab is to go and to worship other gods. So Elimelech's desires to provide aren't wrong, however his choices aren't right. So men, let's think practically just for a moment. And you can provide for your family, but that doesn't mean your family necessarily will thrive. I'm sure you've seen it. Men who have good jobs, maybe even great jobs. They provide well for their family, but their children are totally gone. They're totally absent. See, our job as fathers or members or men of this church is not just to provide provisionally. It's to provide community, to provide a spiritual identity, it's to provide safety. And here Elimelech is leaving his people, God's people, God's promised land, their network, their church, their friends, their accountability. See, men, we can provide food, we can start our kids off in good hobbies, and we can still fail them. The call for Deuteronomy 6, to train up children, that's the way that they should go. Men, the first pastor or the first shepherd that your family, your children should have, it's not the pastor of the church, it's you. You're the ones that should should set the temperature and the tone of your household. You are the first pastor of your children because men, your children follow you. Even when you don't notice it, they watch you. They listen to you. They test boundaries with you because they want to be like you. My dad's nickname is Bob. My nickname is little Bob because I'm like my father. In so many ways, good and some not so great. I am like my dad. Then your children will be raised in the home that you raised them in. Your children will be raised in the home that you raised them in. And here's what I mean. They will model the people that you model. They will learn from the people that you learn. They may marry the people that you set them around. They will value the things that you value. Every Sunday, we get home from church. It's my habit. As we're getting the kids ready, I turn on the saints. Before I even turn it on, Russell's always asking, Tiger's playing today? Saints playing today? He wants to know because he values the things that I value. He doesn't really like it, but he knows that I like it. And so because I like it, he likes it. Bringing our children to church is one thing, but making them active and participate in the disciplines of the faith so that they grow in wisdom and stature is another. It's one thing to provide for your children. It's a completely different Thing to pray over them, to pray for them. To take it a step further, it's another to show them repentance and faith. To show them another, it's to step out in faith, to to trust the church, the elders of your church. What is Elimelech's intention? His intention, if you noticed early on, his intention is to sojourn. You see that in verse one? That means his intention is just to go there for a little bit. His intention is to go there, get what they need, maybe come back, but what happens? At the end, it says they remained there. They stayed there for 10 years. And worse, he ends up dying there. What is Elimelech's first mistake? His initial problem is not that he went to Moab. His his initial problem is that he did exactly the age of his culture. He did what was right in his own eyes. That's Elimelech's first mistake, is he did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there is this, there is this temptation that, that we all have, where, especially I do, where, where I live in the micro. I live in the day-to-day because my days fill up so busy. Sometimes I can lose perspective of the fuller picture, and I can get wrapped up in things that are happening. I can get overwhelmed, anxious, And I am at times you can imagine whatever it is in your life. I don't know what your circumstances are. To say, man, in some ways I am in I am in a drought. Maybe it's a drought spiritually. Maybe it's a drought emotionally. Maybe it's a drought relationally, and it feels like a famine. It feels like that you have just been strung out and moving along. And so, what might be tempted? What we might be tempted to do? What is right in our own eyes? And find our own escape, whatever that might be. I don't know what it is. I don't want to just start picking pet sins here. But you know your heart. We know what we're drawn to. And in what ways are we like a where we might just want to sojourn in Moab just for a little bit. Just to get some relief and then we'll come back. And when we look up, we realize we've remained there for 10 years. Okay, now let's see the second story of Ruth and see how these come together, and we'll bring it all back together, starting in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malhan and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this is easy to miss, but what the author is doing here, I believe, is, is fascinating, okay? What he, notice the name change for Naomi, starting in verse 3 and then to verse 5. What happens? She starts off with her name, Naomi, but now what is she called in verse 5 after Elimelech, Nahan, and Kilian die? What does she refer to as? This woman, When her husband and her sons die, in one sense the author is saying that she has lost an identity. Naomi's condition has seemingly gone from bad to hopeless. And I don't want this to sound harsh, especially in our modern context, that a woman's only identity is in her husband. Now this is what the author is saying, and so I I want us to see this very clearly, what's happening. Naomi is away from home, she's away from Bethlehem, she's away from her community, she's away from family, she's away from friends. She has lost her husband which is her provider, but not only her provider, it's also her protection. But losing her husband is not all bad because children in this day it were somewhat like a 401K. They were somewhat like a retirement invested, investment in your old age, they would provide for you as you go march towards death. But now she's lost them. So now she's lost her provider and her protection in Elimelech, and she's lost her security and in her investment in her children. And not only that, What does it say about Naomi is that she's working in the fields. She's completely acclimated herself to Moabite custom and culture. And Naomi has had this false sense of being full. What does she say when she returns back to Bethlehem? I left full, and now I return empty. She had this idea that going to Moab was going to make her full. And now coming back to the promised land, she's now empty. Because there is an allure about Moab. There is an allure about this deceitful seduction that our sin promises. It promises life. It promises fullness. But it only brings about death. So the question this morning is, who or what is your Moab? Where have you intended to only sojourn for a little bit, to just get a little relief? But now that you look back on it, you realize you've remained there. You see, for Naomi to come back to Bethlehem, for Naomi to return in one way is to repent. For Naomi to return to Bethlehem in one way is to repent. But unlike Naomi, her response is to return to the promised land. For us, our response is to return to the promised one in Jesus. You see, what we learn in this first chapter in Ruth is to be away from Christ is to be away from life and hope. The second thing that we see is to return to Christ is costly but necessary. We must leave behind, like Naomi, all that Moab stands for. By nature, we belong to Moab. We we belong in the death of our sins, but we must forsake this and cling to the covenant promises of God in Christ. We must live by faith in Christ. Now there's a few things to point out here that Naomi says for Orpah and Ruth, that there are no brothers for them to marry. There's no possibility of Leverite marriage for them going back. Even if she were to get a husband and conceive a child today, are they going to wait? No, it's too far gone. Their situation is hopeless. And then four times we see that Ruth, I mean, Naomi urges Ruth to go back. She says, look at your sister-in-law She's going back to her people and her gods. That will be better for you. Return there. Because Moab is not just a place, it's a society, an ethnicity, a culture, a religion, a people. But Ruth doesn't do this. And before Naomi even knows it, in one way, the proclamation, the declaration that Ruth makes to trust in her Lord and faithfulness to his people, to trust in Yahweh is the best sermon that Naomi will ever hear. And I just want to pause and acknowledge that there are some really dark circumstances that this story is in and how terrible things that can make us question God. But Naomi is showing a resol- or Ruth is showing a resolute faithfulness to go back, to trust the Lord. Here's a story of a guy uh, named Chad Bird. And in a lot of ways... Uh, he resembles Elimelech in in some ways. Now, he is a theologian. I've uh, just recently found him and started reading his stuff, and he has a fascinating story. Uh, He was a pastor of a Lutheran church. Uh, He's married, had a few kids, and he tells a story by saying uh, that he could tell you he studied Hebrew Bible College, I think, in Jerusalem, and he was telling the story by saying he could tell you whatever rabbis' exegesis of Genesis one one you wanted to know. He knew it at the back of his head, snap a finger, he knew it. But he couldn't tell you his daughter's favorite stuffed animal. In one way, Chad would say that his story is like Elimelech's. He completely neglected. He provided for his family in one way, but he completely neglected them emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. This led to uh, Chad's divorce. It led to him uh, leaving the pastorate, stepping down after his divorce. And it led to a season of wandering for him, wondering if he even believed what he believed. And his story brought him to driving trucks across West Texas, 18 wheelers. And he tells a story, uh, connecting this to Ruth, about the best sermon he ever heard. He parks his truck in some gas station in West Texas. The night before, I'm skipping ahead, the night before, he said he was sitting at such a point of despair that he was laying on a motel floor with a bottle of Jim Beam in one hand and a revolver in his mouth in another hand. He just wanted to end it. He just wanted it to be done. The next morning, though, he's traveling across West Texas, stops at this gas station. He gets out of the truck, and this woman approaches him, and he can tell, like, she's just filled with grime and filth. He can smell her from just walking up to him, and she says, excuse me, sir. She said, um, I don't mean to bother you. Me and my husband, we just got into town last night. Uh, we're, uh, we're just really hungry. Could you uh, spare any, any money for us? And he said, uh, how about this? How about I just go into the gas station. I'll, I'll buy you some food. So he goes in there. He's looking around he doesn't notice a husband so he's a little suspicious until he passes by the dumpster and realizes he's digging in the dumpster to try and find food for him and his wife so he goes inside he purchases some sandwiches chips drinks and comes back and by this time the husband's coming out shakes his hand he's like you can feel all the grime and the grease from being in the dumpster and he goes man thank you so much i appreciate it so me and my wife just got into town last night been pretty hungry, we've been sleeping under the interstate bridge, he said, but you know what, wherever we go, God's always been good to us, and then he said, said this, he said, Jesus has always provided for us this way, and in that moment, like it just hit Chad, that this man's faith uh, was more resolute, more strong than his, in a similar way, when I was in uh, a sophomore in college. um, Some of you know my family. I have an older sister, Erin. And when I was in college, my sister and her husband, they were expecting their first child. And we grew up in a small family. So this was like incredibly exciting news that there was going to be a new willy baby in the family. Yes, she's a Stokes, but really it's going to be a willy baby. So we're excited. And it's the day that we're going to find out the gender of the baby. And I had come home from school that evening, and I'd fallen asleep on the couch. And it's one of those naps where... You're asleep, but you're also alert. Like You kind of know what's happening around you, but you can't move. You're like just in rigor mortis in a way. And so the phone rings and I think, I gotta answer that, but I can't get up. It stops, phone calls again. I just like, I gotta get up, but I can't make myself. And then the, finally the third time I get up and I have a voicemail from my mom. And she says, John, you need to get to the hospital. Aaron's lost the baby. Oh. So I get in the car. And I am flying to Cabrini. And the whole time I'm flying, I am screaming at God. I am so angry. So how can you allow this to happen to Aaron? To Aaron. She's faithful in the church. She serves you. She goes on mission trips. Like, why are you going to allow this to happen to Aaron's baby, who loves you and serves you? And this is my prayer, like, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord, for praying this. But I said... Why are you going to take Aaron's baby and not the crack whore baby that the mom doesn't even want it? Why my sister's baby? And I ended my prayer by saying, I don't know if you're good, and I'm going to need to know if you are why. Why you're good. And when I got to the hospital, and I go through the door, it's like I can still see it in living color like it happened yesterday. Uh, you don't know what to say in this situation, so I just go to Aaron and say, Aaron, I am, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And you know what she said? She said, John, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Let his name be praised. Oh. Man, I knew in that moment that my sister had a foundation for her faith that was stronger than any I had ever experienced. And so I knew from from that moment on, it sent me on a journey of of seeking the Lord and and asking those questions, are you good? Can I trust that you're good? Can can I still follow you? In one way, this is how we see Ruth and Naomi. Naomi doesn't see it yet. But, Naomi, but Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi is going to change Naomi's entire life, and Ruth's, by her to say that your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. May the Lord do so to me if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth, the great, 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 however many greats, grandmother, of the soon-to-be Messiah, this Ruth. Moab has a way of making us believe that it is the only option. When, when we are in famine, when, when our life has a drought, we, we have this tendency to believe that this is all that there is. Maybe God is not good. And this is Naomi. She's saying, go back. There's, there's nothing in Bethlehem for you. There's nothing good this way. But we see that even in our famine, even in our droughts, that the Lord is still there. The Lord is present and active in every moment of our lives. As the psalmist says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted, and we see this. Now, maybe you feel distant towards God. Maybe you feel cold towards God. Maybe you've been in a famine or a drought for a long time. But consider this. This is from Chad Bird, who I told that story from. He says this. The God who redeems a drunken knight in a cave where two daughters seduce their dad to sleep with them starts a people of Moabites who rebel against God but raises up one faithful daughter from Moab, Ruth, to bring the lineage of Christ, and he can't redeem you? No, your God is too glorious. The Lord has not forgotten you. The Lord sees you. The Lord knows you. He's close to the brokenhearted. And the story of Ruth shows us that. The story of Ruth makes us ask this question, am I doing what is right in my own eyes or am I living by God's wisdom? Am I stuck in Moab? Did I intend to sojourn or am I stuck in this rhythm of unrepentant sin? Is there a famine in my life that is making me question the goodness of God? Now there's, again, there's so much in this story that we could go back and talk about and talk through, but I want to end here. I want to end with this wordplay that also points to the Messiah and I think gives us some lane to operate in if you feel like you've been sojourning in Moab for a while. It's the wordplay on Bethlehem, that Bethlehem means house of bread and what's happening, there's a famine in the land. Now for us... Bread is like a mere appetizer to a meal, or something that we try and cut out of our diets to lose some weight. But for ancient Israelites, bread was in one sense the primary source of life. Now we've lost in our culture in a way the value of bread because we have food so readily accessible to us. Uh, But meat was a luxury, and their meals primarily consisted of bread to fill them. But bread is not only their primary source of food. Remember, bread plays a primary role in Israel's story. Now, if you remember um, in the Exodus, we know that God provides manna in the wilderness. But before before that, we see the Israelites grumbling because they're hungry. And what do they say? Where do they want to go? They say, it'd be better for us to go back to Egypt. And there's fish there. There's bread there. And in one way, Elimelech is like a zoomed-in version of Israel. Israel wants to return back to Egypt, back to their gods, back to their enslavement. Elimelech wants to go to Moab, to their gods, to their oppression, and Judges 3. But in Exodus 24, uh, there's something that amazing happens. If you remember in Exodus 24 where God shows up on the mountain, and there's all the thundering, the lightning, all the sound effects that make it truly terrifying. And God has Moses go and atone for the sins of the people, offering sacrifices and sprinkling the 70 elders and the altar with the blood of the sacrifice so that they can go up the mountain. Now, what's amazing is when they are able to go up the mountain, they're not zapped with lightning. The thunder and the lightning do not show back up. You don't hear the thunderous voice that splits rocks open. Something else amazing happens. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. Let me read this for you. I don't know if I have it. Well, no, I do. Okay, there's a wind. It says this. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these elders, these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Throughout history, even today, an invitation to share a meal together is an invitation to relationship. It's saying, I want to invite you into my home. I want to get to know you. I want to be friends with you. It's a big deal to break bread together. Now, Jesus says something fascinating in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Okay, so stay with me here, this theme of bread. Now, Jesus says he is the bread of life. Now, the Greek has two words for life that differentiate it for us. You probably know the first one, bios. It's the root word of biology. It refers to physical life, uh, the study of life. But the second word that we get is zoe. Now, this refers to a vitality or a fullness of life. Me and my oldest son, Russell, who's seven, we have this habit some days after school I'll get him, and I'll have his golf clubs in the back, and we'll go to the golf course. And we have this tradition, and he knows it. Like, you don't have to ask him what we're doing. We get out of the car. We go get him a lemonade, and he chooses between blue and red Doritos, and we just go out and have a time. We get out to the golf course. He starts hitting golf balls, and one day, he, he hit a golf ball. He's not very good. He's getting there. But he hits, like, his best shot that he's hit in a while, and he goes, man, I am golfing today. He's loving it. He's, he's, he's living life with daddy. Now, to say that he's living life, is he just living? Is he just having existence with daddy? Yeah, but no. Like for Russell, he's having like the best time. This is it, man. He's golfing the day. He's got the lemonade and the red Doritos and he's loving it. It's a fullness of life. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he says, I am the bread of Zoe. I am the fullness of life. I am all vitality and strength and joy of life. Jesus doesn't just say that I am existence of life. Can you imagine that, living just in sheer existence of life with all of my doubt, sin, anxiety? That wouldn't be life, that'd be hell for me to live in that. But Jesus promises something different. He promises a vitality of life, a fullness of life. A joy of life. How? Because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In one of the most profound statements in all of the Gospels, when Moses, met, or when Moses met God and God is giving Moses the instructions to go deliver the Israelites, to go to Pharaoh, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God answers emphatically, we all know it, say, I am sent me. Now this is a startling way to introduce yourself. To say, I am the source of life. I am the source of all life. I am. Not I was. I am. I am beginning less. I am transcendent. I depend on nothing. Everything depends on me. I am the source of all power and being. I am. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now catch this very clearly. For us, to sustain ourselves what must we do we must eat we must eat bread but for us to be sustained what must happen to that bread first it must die the grain must be harvested it must be ground into dough it must be baked you see everything that we eat for us to have life must first die jesus the i am The transcendent God, the bread of life, for us to get out of our spiritual famine, to return not back to the promised land, but to the promised one. What must he first do? He must die. The bread of life being broken for us. Now, isn't this amazing that Jesus is going to, the the I am, the bread of life, is going to be born in the town that is known as the house of bread? It's this Jesus that we come to. It's this Jesus that rescues us from our famine of life. So what do we do from that? But what should our response be? First, I think it's this. Jesus is not just someone to be believed, but he's to be made your strength in your life. In other words, Jesus can't just be an abstraction. He he can't just be like a mental exercise that's out there. He must be your strength daily. And here's how this can play out. As a Christian, when you are wronged, you can say, what has happened to me is wrong. I've lost something valuable, but what I haven't lost is ultimate. I have real pain, real hurts, but my source of joy is in Jesus. And that's what keeps me going. Jesus is my basis of life, my basis of joy, my basis of reality. And why? Because we continually feed on him. We continually feed on Jesus. If you are in a, a famine of a drought of your life and you're sojourning in Moab, return to the bread of life. Say you're angry. Say you've been robbed of your re- reputation. You've experienced a great loss. Is it a good thing? Yes, your reputation is a good thing. But is it ultimate? No. It's a good thing, but it isn't your life. Jesus is your life. You can forgive. How can you forgive? Because Jesus forgives us. Jesus, in Isaiah 53, the one that was wounded for our transgressions, by his wounds we are healed. So some of you, Some of us may be going through a really tough time. You feel like you're in a famine, feed on him. It's in these moments where we are at the end of ourselves and we turn to Jesus, he moves from an abstraction to a lived reality. Sometimes we don't realize Jesus is all we need until we realize that he's all we've got. We have nothing else but him, the source and the author of all life. If all of the earth fades away, He remains the same. So whatever it is that we are journeying in through life, and the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but he has given us his son, Jesus, the bread of life. The story of Ruth points to this faithful redeemer, the eternal one becoming flesh, broken for us. So just to recap, to be away from Christ is to be far from life and hope. To return to Christ is costly but necessary. And lastly, when you come to Christ, Christ brings you into his family. Here's the most amazing thing. At the resurrection in John chapter 20, when Mary sees Jesus, he gives Mary these instructions. He says, go and tell the disciples that I am ascending to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. Here's what the resurrection of Jesus is offers. It's for us to be sons and daughters of the living God. Now, many of you don't know my son, Russell, but I will pose a question, and I'll give you the answer. Is there anything that my son, or for parents in the room, is there anything that your sons or your daughters could ever do to remove themselves from your love? There's nothing. There's nothing that Russell could ever do that would remove himself from my love, and so it is for you, Christian that you get to call God your father and you are safe and secure in him. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray um, that this story of Ruth, it, it caused us to examine her faithfulness to Naomi, but Father, that it really opens our eyes to your faithfulness to us, that you are willing to become flesh And dwell among us and endure the cross so that we might be called children of God to all who believe and receive you. So, Jesus, I pray uh, for Wardville and I pray for Alpine that we could be ministers of this gospel message. Father, that we could be the ones that go out and proclaim this goodness of the faithful one, you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.